You're listening to the Elmira Radio Hour, a podcast that opens the door to culture and news you definitely missed this week. We're, we're your, your hosts, hosts, Nina Bhattacharya and Sheila Lal. This week, we're checking in about one of our favorite graphic novels, Bitch Planet, and talking about reproductive rights um, before transitioning to an interview with my dear friend, artist, and radical librarian, Neil Lagerwald. Let's get this episode started. What has been giving me a lot of optimism is two graphic novels. One is a collect, like the first volume of the comic series Bitch Planet by Kate DeConnick is giving me so much life after the election. So what's it about? So it is a world where the patriarchy has won. That kind of hits too much on the nose in some ways. Yeah. And everything is controlled by a council of fathers. Like, the council of fathers puts people within a gender binary, even though that doesn't exist. Cool, cool. Right? Yeah. So people, women who are considered non-compliant are incarcerated in space, essentially, in a place colloquially known as Bitch Planet. If you're too fat, too religious, too thin. If you're not a nine or ten. Yep. Oh my god, we're living in this planet. You know, and it's really fascinating because you see these characters, you see women who are quote-unquote considered compliant, and these are women who present their bodies in certain ways, Mm -hmm. um, are socialized to respond to men's comments in certain ways. They do an excellent job of making the point that women can be part of the patriarchy as well, because they're socialized to believe feminism doesn't matter or isn't for them which is a really interesting concept so you see both sides and all the women who are incarcerated on bitch planet are like Mm -hmm. women of all backgrounds really they represent the true diversity of like women in general Mm -hmm. and that's powerful to watch there's this one amazing scene where there's this awesome character named penelope who's like black and fat and aggressive and she, but she also was like a baker in her past life and made awesome pastries and muffins and stuff. You know, the Council of Fathers is trying to be like, hey, we want you to see your idealized self. So they attach all these wires to her mm-hmm. face and her body. And they're like, we're going to project to you in the mirror what your idealized self is because you're not being compliant. They're hoping that her idealized self will be the skinny, straight haired, like light skinned black you know, woman or full lipped. Yeah. Yeah, right, like this, you know, societal notion of beauty. And they are shocked to find out when the mirror is turned around and it's just a reflection of herself. Ah, yes! It's such a powerful moment, cause she, and she just laughs at them because she's like, I'm not, I ain't broken. Like, I'm happy. I'm totally comfortable in the body and that I have. It's just, like, so good, Sheila. It's that so looks, good. That sounds really like, awesome. Whenever I have a little bit of money, I'm sending it to, like, all the people I care about slowly. Because it is such a good, like, strong believer of art as a form of resistance and mm-hmm. empathy and, like, activism. And yeah. Bitch Planet is a great one. Another good one that I just picked up, Not Funny haha, a handbook for something hard. And... That's a handbook about getting an abortion. Whoa. And I picked it up and I was like, I don't know what this is about. I started flipping through and I was like, holy shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. This is a beautifully drawn handbook about getting an abortion. And it follows the stories of two two women, one in her 30s and one in in her early 20s about the process, you know, medical abortion Mm -hmm. and the surgical abortion. Surgical Mm -hmm. abortion being... performed by a doctor and a medical abortion meaning you're you taking take two, two pills it does such a good job of like demystifying the process 
that is so fucking cool. Yeah, and it's like, hey, you might feel these things. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to feel these things. I think it does a great job of giving young people agency of, about their bodies and reproductive decisions. Yeah. While simultaneously lo- lowering the pressure of, like, navigating the process. Yeah. Speaking of abortion is... So on Giving Tuesday, I donated to Lilith Fund, which is a nonprofit in Texas that funds mm-hmm. abortions for women who yeah. don't have access to them. I think it's really interesting that there isn't one in states who actually have more restrictive abortion laws. Missouri, Oklahoma, I think both Dakotas and Wyoming, and I could be making that up, but and like in definitely Mississippi. These are like a conglomerate of states that have aggressively restrictive abortion uh, laws and Missouri, as I've said before, only has one abortion provider, and they're just and it's in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So, a question: So, is the abortion access in Missouri more a product of only having one place where you can have the abortion, or are there laws similar to like we have trap the we fetal yeah. burial? Um, so we don't we don't have that one quite yet, but we do have a lot of tra- <laughs> trap like, laws. You're like we don't have that one yet, but <laughs> pre-filing is happening, so you never know. It could come up in the next month or two. No, so we have we actually had over two dozen abortion providers uh, three decades ago, and it's through like systemically creating uh, over-regulation on abortion clinics to ensure that they couldn't stay open. Mm-hmm that closed them all down. And so the one in St. Louis is the only one that remains open. Columbia had one for about six months mm-hmm. last year. We had we have a Planned Parenthood. We have all the um, licensure that we need. It was just, we also have refer and follow privileges, mm-hmm. which was deemed unconstitutional by the SCOTUS ruling this past year. What that means is that if you are a physician at, uh, who wants to provide abortions, uh, you have to have privileges with a local hospital in case something goes wrong. Which is bullshit. Uh. <laughs> because the risk, like, let's think about the people who, like, the ambulatory services in that aren't affiliated with hospitals that don't have to have that. And the risk of uh, hitting a complication for other procedures is a mm-hmm. lot higher mm-hmm. than an abortion. No, no, definitely. Yeah, so it's just another way of uh, ensuring that those providers can't provide those abortions for, mm-hmm. uh, for people in that area. We have medically inaccurate information that's mandated so you, the abortion provider in uh, St. Louis is required to give false uh, medical information to the woman receiving an abortion. We have a 72-hour waiting period, which means that you get checked in, and then 72 hours later, not including weekends or holidays, you can go and get your abortion, which means there's an incredible backlog and people can't actually receive That's them. why the six-weeks law in Ohio is, is crazy. It's insane. Well, other than the fact that a lot of people, even at six weeks, don't know that they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, just like periods are motherfuckers, and yep. sometimes don't come on time in general. Like I don't think people, like dudes, realize that sometimes your period just doesn't come or it comes late when you're stressed. Yeah, it's just like stuff like that. And six weeks is not enough time to know any of these things. Also, ironically, it is ironically numbered Senate Bill sixty nine. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I thought it was great. <laughs> oh, I meant to say it was National Network of Abortion Funds. That's oh, okay, the organization okay. through which people should donate one of, and so Lilith Fund is part of that network, um, the national network of abortion funds. Okay. But it's a great gift. Yeah, funding to, an abortion to enable a woman to make her own reproductive choices. Oh, oh. but I hope we're on the same planet together. Yeah, hopefully they don't separate us. <laughs> week I had the opportunity to connect with my dear friend Neil Uggerwall who is a fantastic multi-percussionist. He plays the tabla, he plays a whole variety of other world percussion instruments. But on top of that he is a radical librarian. So that's all I'm going to say for right now. Neil, thanks for being my like I feel like I'm having like a, a driving tour of yeah. I am having a driving tour of L.A. You're in it. I'm in it. This is Little Tokyo um, up here. Really cool shopping kind of area. Green tea, everything. You green know. tea, everything. I do love green tea. Yeah. As you saw my ice, <laughs> ice cream, cream yesterday. <clears throat> Far East is 
cool bar. Here's the shopping area. There's like a whole complex in here. Tons of like little uh, Hello Kitty stuff, all that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> and then this is a really cool Japanese American museums right here. Very interesting. They've got really good programs for the Asian American community. Yeah, I think that's one thing I really have enjoyed about LA is Yeah, I mean, you're on the Pacific Rim here, you know. <clears throat> How did you become a librarian? Um, just because I was working at the ACLU in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. it, was the, it was actually the, the drug law reform project. So we did all, we worked on just reforming the drug policies um, in the U.S. because the basic premise of that project is that the drug policies are essentially the new Jim Crow mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and they're racist and they're unfairly targeting mm -hmm. um, you know people of color poor people especially so that was cool but I didn't practice there I, I had a lot of good in practice but did a lot of research and um, a lot of behind the scenes stuff advocacy work that was a national ACLU so we took around, took on cases from around the country, um, but then I, so that I didn't want to practice. So it was a really cool program that I learned about at University of Washington, and it's the original law librarianship program from 1930, I think. Sorry. Oh, wow. So you have to have a JD to apply. Okay. So everybody there is, you know, JD, and then they get the master's in library science, and they become law librarians because you need to have those two degrees at this point to do reference work at any of the law schools or you know work at any libraries. So, yeah, it just happened. And then now I'm kind of, I'm using law because we need to know the copyright laws of all the stuff we're digitizing. So I'm, a big part of my research right now is what are the copyright laws of Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh? That's a, hard, a lot of stuff to, to get into. Okay, so just to, I mean, re rewind a little bit, what does, what does a law librarian do? Like, if, like, what kind of work were you doing at the LA Law Library? Yeah, my, my role... My title there was Global Law Librarian, and so I was in charge of a, the largest collection of foreign and international laws on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So by foreign law, I mean like the laws of other countries. Uh, so it could be the laws of India or laws of Nigeria. They're domestic laws. We had a large collection of that. And then also international laws, so treaties between countries huge collection of all that material so I was in charge of it and I was uh, also in charge of building that collection every like just always in charge of just building it and purchasing materials so so how it, did you determine what what to purchase like um there particularly I think you have to triangulate a lot in, in research and librarianship is you have to see what your your users people that are, are using your services what do they need so you only know that through experience, through doing reference work and, and answering the questions. Like, oh, wow, there's a lot of people who need um, materials on intellectual property or family law, labor law, all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. So you start developing that understanding and documenting what people need. And then from there, you have a budget mm -hmm. to just build that collection. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so, like, who, who who's, like, the primary audience um, that you were working with? The, with the, with the co collection you had? That was... Like, who are the type of people that were coming in? So, lawyers um, who do cross-border work. So, if, let's say, there's um, one of their clients is getting, got married in Mexico, but is getting divorced in America, how do you, how do you uh, effectuate that divorce when the, the marriage was um, under the laws of Mexico? So that type of thing, or they need, or there's a lawsuit in, in mm -hmm. the UK and they need to serve somebody. How do you effectively, you know, serve somebody? What are the laws and, and rules about serving somebody? Um, those are sort of <clears throat> some of the bread and butter questions. Then you get a lot of questions from the law firms because we're in LA, so there's a lot of multinational firms. And so they would ask questions um, about employment law for example, but then I, I helped a lot of the human rights clinics too at UCLA and um, USC and Loyola Law School and so they would need like a, let's say a nationality law from 1975, mm -hmm. you know f from, you know, a Caribbean country for example, because they were mm -hmm. doing, you know citizenship work <clears throat> so it really ran the gamut you know, I'm, I'm like a more of a public interest person, but still you have to serve people 
you know, yeah. who are doing anything. Where are we right now? This is a, this is the fashion district okay. we're going into, and um, these are the neighborhoods, the districts of downtown LA. Mm -hmm. So we were just in Little Tokyo. There's the fashion district, toy district, jewelry district, theater district. Oh, so now I they see. all have their kind of characters like that, characteristics. So what was one of the coolest documents that you got to work with when you were at the LA Law Library? Um, like, is there any something specific that? Yeah. Like, this is so rad. Yeah, actually, one thing that comes to mind was uh, one of the um, an attorney came from Australia, and he does all of the sort of consulate work uh, from Australia, the relationship with Panama, mm -hmm. and so he was there and he wanted to see the the uh, document that establishes the independence of Panama. And we had it in its original what? form because um, we have, you know, such a great historical collection. So that that was really interesting. Um, our our uh, our foreign law collection was so good that the United Nations would call me a lot and ask for laws of other countries because they have a great treaty collection there, international laws, mm -hmm. but they don't have the foreign laws. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of different types of people to work with, and then you know, and then. I also did a lot of domestic reference because <clears throat> I also worked on the reference desk answering questions in person uh, for people who had any questions. So it could be about local municipal law, mm -hmm. um, it could be about uh, state law or um, federal law. But we, but I also taught a lot there. Um, what kind of what kind of things were you teaching? I taught classes on research in international family law, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. research in um, trade and export. So mostly lawyers were kind of... Yeah, a lot of lawyers. Those were for MCLE credits, so continuing education for lawyers. They need to, to take classes mm -hmm. to maintain their accreditation. Um, but yeah, still a lot of um, classes to the public, too, uh, training them on databases like Westlaw and LexisNexis. Um, yeah, it's interesting how those, like... LexisNexis is just, like, not intuitive if you don't have... Like, right, you have to you know. know what, how to, like, maximize your efforts when using it. Right. I also did a lot of hands-on training, so the various law schools would call me to go there and, and train their students. Well, it blew my mind. I didn't know well, there's that it was the second largest public law library pub in public the country. Law library. It's the largest collection on the West Coast, um, and so it has a huge reputation. Uh, this library, this building that we just saw, the LA Law Library, uh, was from from the 1950s that's when that was created but the actual library has been in existence since 1891 so they just celebrated the 125th anniversary wow. and tons of events uh -huh. um, for it so <clears throat> it's got a great collection but anyone can come in and, and use the services from anywhere they can call in from anywhere so we had a lot of calls and reference desks from every state um, and people who can't afford representation they would often come and to our library and uh, ask questions about their litigation their 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 open cases their active cases that were going on and the reference librarians at LA library are very helpful um, and they provided a lot of assistance so that's a really interesting dynamic having like people of probably lower socioeconomic background in downtown LA in downtown LA <laughs> Like, what was it and like working, you know? There, I mean, you definitely have to have patience because, you know, people can ask you certain questions and um, they can be a little bit on edge, too, because these are active cases. This isn't right. like a regular public library where people are coming in and, you know, you, reading books or whatnot. Like, the, the, this is an actual library for legal cases. And so you definitely have to have patience and understanding. But also what I learned was... A lot of these people have had cases and been in and out of the court system for their whole lives, and so they're very, very savvy with 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 law, mm -hmm. making legal arguments, um, and just kind of figuring out how to navigate the legal system. Like that's what we're trying to help them with. I mean, it's a mess, the legal system, but we can help them with with navigating that procedurally and substantively. It's pretty rad, you know, like to think about how a library is like helping people, you know have the agency to 
navigate the legal system themselves. And that's our goal is to empower them with the knowledge um, and how to just become more self-sufficient as well. Obviously we're there for them, you know, whatever question they have, but we want to teach them, you know, and provide the tools to empower people. So that's why it was really important to offer database training so that could they get free access to Lexis and, West, and, and Westlaw. These are extremely expensive databases mm -hmm. that we pay mm -hmm. for out of our budget. And we offer classes every week, hands-on classes, where people for a very, very low cost can come and um, uh, take tr hands-on trainings on these databases or different topics too. There's tons of topics all the time. It's a very active environment. Are, pe are people pretty successful like in representing themselves? Some, yeah. And it's interesting when you hear the success stories when they come back and tell you like, thank you so much for this information provided. This really helped me in my case. Um, or they'll tell you, you know, what the disposition of the case um, was. And that's, I think that's a really uh, just encouraging and inspiring aspect of the job, um, knowing that you're helping people on their con concrete, you know, research projects. And um, so it was a good, good training ground for me to take any legal question and try to help them answer it. You can't provide legal advice on the, de on the reference desk, even if you are a practicing lawyer. So there's, so that's a liability thing, you know. You can't provide mm -hmm. legal advice, but you you can get, show them what we're trained in is, sh is showing people the sources that will give them the the advice that they, that they need. need, right? And we're talking secondary sources and primary, primary so, sources. Yeah, secondary like commentaries that explain the laws, but mm -hmm. also the primary sources that you know that are act the actual laws themselves. Whoa, okay. <clears throat> I was I was just thinking in general when I was in Cambridge right after the election about how. Um, like donating to our public libraries in particular is so important now because yep. I just went to the library shortly after and it's just like the number of resources that are available for community mm -hmm. is just always it boggles my mind it's like a really cool radical space <laughs> where like people of all different backgrounds can like be together and like access internet books a place to sit yeah and for for a lot of people that's their community too the people they see at the library and mm -hmm. um and so i think it's a really important space and also i think it's also important to redefine how we think of libraries it's not just a place to read a book or to you know go on the internet it's also a place to learn so there's a lot of um classes being offered yeah at our, at our library there was tons of free legal clinics i mean it Every week, there was multiple clinics going on, um, whether it was for people figuring out how to do their name change or if, uh, family law clinics. Um, so there was a lot of that citizenship and immigration clinics we had. So these are free services happening at the library where these major organizations, these legal service organizations come in and then they process uh, you know, these, these intakes. Have you thought about how your skills as a librarian might translate in this kind of Trump presidency. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to just be educated. Um, one of the one of the shortcomings that I've I've seen with some of the activism is a lack of understanding of of the laws themselves. So, let's say, for example, <clears throat> one of the major issues right now um, or subjects is Standing Rock, and just guessing I could probably talk to 50 activists who are very passionate and do a lot of work for Standing Rock you could talk to them and learn so much about what they're doing but also realize that maybe out of the 50 people you talk to for example maybe only three or four could even mention one law that's being uh, violated in the Standing Rock situation you know whether it's an environmental law um, or whatnot so I think in this Trump environment we have to be a little bit more careful and, and thorough about our activism and so a lot of these um, movements are based around legal violations and so I think for me I can really help people with uh, understanding the laws at play here and just digesting them too because it can be a little bit intimidating to to do legal research and to understand what the difference is between, for example, a statute and a case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and that's important too because, like, for example, Standing Rock isn't just a legal issue, right? Yeah. There's 
the cultural element, you know, a historical element. Yeah. And it's like a combination of like the legal perspective, you know, the cultural perspective. Economics. Like the economic perspective. These yeah. are all different types of violations. Mm-hmm. And like the case is only stronger when all of those different lenses work together. Right. right? I performed recently in LA on two Standing Rock performances. One was in Venice. Wait, just briefly, because yes. like people probably won't know. Like, what do you play? Oh, I'm a percussionist. Yeah. And so I, um, my main instruments are North Indian tabla, which is the two small drums mm-hmm. uh, that, that always work in a pair. And that's from North India. Uh, and then I also do a lot of drum set and particularly uh, world applications on drum set. So whether it's applying like Western African rhythms on drum set or Brazilian or Afro-Cuban, that's really where I, um, my interest has been. And I did a lot of training in that, especially in Santa Cruz in Northern California. <clears throat> okay, now you can continue your story about the two Standing Rock concerts. Yeah. <laughs> so one was with um, Arish Lal and Alok Mehta. Arish Lal is a trumpet player and mm-hmm. electronic looper. And Alok Mehta is an uh, electric sitar player. So we're taking sort of dance music, jazz, and putting in more of an Indian influence mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. And then I did another show with a Rohi Ensemble. To supplement those, I created a resource list, a guide to the laws of Standing Rock um, with a close friend and colleague, Natasha Rowland. She's a lawyer. That's so awesome. Like what kind of things that... What kind of things did you find? So we found a lot of statutes that were being violated, like environmental statutes. By the way, this is the LA Public Library. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. The fence is gorgeous. Yeah. The top is beautiful. I love they have, big public libraries. They have a great speaker series too where major authors come in and speak mm-hmm. on their work. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so... Uh, one of my goals is just to be to look at these issues that we're facing in society from a very interdisciplinary perspective because that's I think you have to at this point um, have that broad approach uh, when you're analyzing societal issues I'm not only like someone who's has a legal background or a music background background, right I'm really interested in anthropology for example history um, and so I want to bring all that together. So what kind of things were you finding with the Standing Rock when we were pulling together those resources? Well, I think the biggest issue here is that there's a requirement that if it's mm-hmm. a company building a pipeline that's going, that's being built on a in, on indigenous land, there's a requirement that the that there's a consultation with the indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. It was shocking to me um, that that there wasn't really a consultation with indigenous people that live on that land about what the issues they you know they faced with you know this development. Also, treaty law. I mean, these these reservations, these lands, are affected by the treaties from like 1850s, for example, mm-hmm. and so. It's interesting, I was doing a research project last year um, on an indigenous community in Canada and found the treaties uh, that they were involved in mm-hmm. at the LA Law Library. And I found the original old versions too. And it's fascinating and also just really, I think problematic uh, because I called the legal counsel in Canada of this of this tribe and they didn't even have access to the the treaty, and this is like the one of their foundational <laughs> documents, you know. So they didn't even have it. So again, you want to. Mm-hmm. I think one idea that came out of that is, what if we created like a service to um, equip these uh, these tribal communities with the treaties? And obviously, these treaties are a lot of them impose restrictions on on these uh, communities. But it's good to, at least for them to have them so that they know. You know, right. what it's their rights are vis-a-vis the federal or state government. It, it's kind of like 
people are like, why are people tuning into the Trump press conference? It's going to be trash. Which, yes. But it's also important to know what's being said. Yeah, what's being, right? yeah you have to. Um, the more, you know, information you have, the more you can use it as a tool. Yeah. I also worked with uh, Dalit Women Fight. Mm-hmm. They came through LA at Chuko's Justice Center in Inglewood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were on a national tour uh, Women Fight yeah, based I remember out of New that. York. Yeah, mm-hmm. just very eye-opening to me because however bad we think that Dalit people and Dalit women particularly have been treated, it's a hundred times worse. You know, I, I, it was just astonishing. So for that, for that event, I created a list of the laws, a comprehensive list. Again, this no one has really done that, but a comprehensive list of laws that protect Dalit people and Dalit women against discrimination in India. And oh my god. Is this something that we can share? Yes, I'd love to share it. Yeah. Before we get back to my car conversation with Neil, I wanted to pause and introduce you to one of my new favorite artists, Sheila Govindarajan. Her voice is simply magical. It has a very smoky, soulful quality to it. As she describes it, it reflects the multiplicity and richness of the worlds and times she travels. It mixes all sorts of beats, breaks, and rhythms, and deeply reflective of her LA upbringing. In addition to music, Sheila also runs an Ayurvedic practice, this healing quality that is so present in her as soon as we begin talking to her surfaces in all of her music. I'm excited to introduce one of her songs, uh, Ima Ima, from her album, Lady of the Lake. No, 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 no,
what do you think of like all of the sort of syllabi that have emerged after like many of these I would say traumatic events in the states like you know I've seen a Black Lives Matter syllabus I've mm. seen you know the syllabus for, for South Asians the one who want to learn about uh, anti-blackness within the community like do you think they're a positive force how can we like improve curation of these resources like what are some of your thoughts on that yeah I think curation is important um, because what are we doing we're creating a list of, of laws or resources so when you're creating I think it's important to also annotate the, the list so that people have a little bit of a context. Mm -hmm. So if they see a source, a little description of it or what it could be used for, um, I think would be really helpful. So annotated bibliographies are really good. Um, I like the idea of saying what it could be used for. Yeah. Right? What can, how can we use yeah. it? Yeah. So I think that's really important. Uh, and also these lists, um, like these, the syllabi, I, I think are, are, are really important as well. And it's interesting that people are sort of wrangling these sources um, together so that others can have an easy inroad, mm -hmm. in a sense, into the research. For example, I went to India this, this year on a tour. It was a hip-hop tour. Um, we did a lot of different stuff. And um, one of my uh, collaborators, colleagues from America who went with me, she's an incredible dancer um, and intellectual and activist and she's a black woman from Atlanta sorry from Georgia and she's really interested in learning about the relationship between the black lives matter movement and the Dalit movement mm -hmm. and so I sent her the resource list and she looked up every single item on that resource list and was able to the Dalit resource list, and was able to um, just get up to speed on on that on the issues surrounding Dalit people. That I'm so glad that you shared that story in that vignette because, like, my, I was visiting my friend Aliyah in Atlanta before I came here to LA, and we were discussing how, um, like, right now it, in like the movements that are emerging and that exist. Mm. Um, they're still a little bit siloed from each other. There isn't a lot, like, there is talk of allyhood, but connecting, like, local movements to, like, global solidarity and allyhood hasn't, like, quite happened yet. And, like, it'll be interesting to see how we can continue building those bridges and the ways that you've just mentioned um, to not only keep fighting for the things that impact us and our communities, but um, connecting it to other narratives without diminishing those narratives right. or co-opting them. You know? And that's challenging. That's an ongoing challenge. Yeah. Understanding what <laughs> the perspectives of other people. No kidding. Yeah. There's a lot of play. Um, this is interesting. Where are we this, right now? This is Echo Park. This is the other side. So like downtown and then Echo Park's the next neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then Silver Lake, um, Los Feliz, and Hollywood. Okay, Those are yeah. sort of the east side neighborhoods. Uh -huh. Wait, so, okay. Just to, we've talked a lot about some of the activist side uh -huh. of things that you do, but can we talk about your hip hop tour in India? Yeah. Like, what was that about? How many, like, yeah, just give me the lowdown on that. I've sure. heard a little bit, but. Yeah. I think it's so cool, and people need to know that Neil Agarwal is like a multifaceted, rad human being. <laughs> from Michigan, we're both from Michigan. Lansing. Woo, what up? And you're from Flint. Yep. Um, that was an incredible experience because it was a tour um, on quote-unquote urban arts, you know, however you define that, but it was, it was an initiative that the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi kind of came up with and they had a they had a big grant for it mm -hmm. and we worked with an organization called cultural vistas uh, based out of dc in new york so uh, they were looking for six artists from the united states uh, to go on this tour this hip-hop urban arts tour and i was the only um, musician as such and um, so that was a challenge, you know, I'm, I'm playing drums for dancers, hip-hop dancers, break dancers, 
um, and visual artists too. And did you just take your drum kit to India, or did you also take your tabla? Yeah, tabla, darbuka, which is Middle Eastern percussion, and frame drums, which is oh North my African goodness, you had a lot of a lot stuff, of stuff, a lot of equipment. Okay. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was a lot of stuff. And then when I was in India, we rented a drum kit everywhere where we went, so there was a lot of moving the kit around. But <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun yeah. just being there. It was a tour of um, Kolkata, Chennai. Mumbai and Delhi, so India's biggest cities, their, their biggest urban cities. So it was interesting also because out of the six of us, I was the only person with a South Asian background. Mm -hmm. And there were three black women who went. Oh, that's amazing. One, um, one Filipino man mm -hmm. and a Latina woman. That's a, a whole, like me. only a group of people of color. Are yeah, you serious? it was pretty cool. That's rad. Yeah, it was one of the best times, and you know, I learned a lot just from being around them. And you know, I was able to play a certain role there too because I was the only person you know who's who's of South Asian descent, and so I was able to really kind of play that cultural, you know, facilitator or broker role and help them out, which however way I could. Um, and also, we also we know that how stigmatized. Certain people, like say black people, are in India. Mm -hmm. uh, but what was really beautiful, also, was that these people we went that I went with, these great artists, they were treated so well by our audience and by all the different collaborators mm -hmm. we were working with in these cities. I mean, they were treated like rock stars. You know, what kind of groups were you meeting when you were in like Kolkata and all of these different places? Like, who are the the types of artists? Were they just dancers? You said you did some stuff with visual artists. Yeah, so, so Kolkata, our our uh, our host organization was Buoyant Performing Arts, and they're a dance studio um, focusing on hip hop and contemporary dance. And it was it was amazing. Um, one of our group members would give. For example, a workshop on, on on capoeira from Brazil or West African dance or even hip-hop dance. And, and people loved it. And for hip-hop, for example, the hip-hop community in Kolkata is thriving, the dance community. There'd be like 50, 60 people showing up to these workshops and there'd be seven-year-olds doing like break dancing, you know, on the ground, full spins, you know, mm -hmm. with perfect form, you know, it's just Indian people. And it's interesting to see how this... India, this American hip-hop culture, this culture that came from New York, for example, how it's been translated into India. So that was that was really awesome. We're a very positive community. Um, so I got to play with a lot of, again, there was a lot of hip-hop artists. Um, what was, from the tour, is there a specific uh, yeah. collaboration that you really hold close to you? Yeah. We also did some cool, some really powerful radio interviews. Um, the people I was traveling with were, were such great activists and they were very powerful. So um, they were, weren't afraid to make statements um, about um, rape culture, for example, in India, caste-based discrimination, inequality. So we always incorporated that into our performances and um, our lectures and demonstrations we were giving. When we were in Delhi, our host group was Delhi Poetry Slam. So a mm -hmm. great slam poets over there. And so we got to do some really good collaborations with slam poets and also bring in visual arts. There were some great visual artists there that, you know, in our group and, and that we worked with. So really combining these this, these different uh, sort of media formats into, a, into one performance. You know, now that I'm back in L.A., I think there's a lot of food for thought. And one thing is I, I can't emphasize enough is the importance of collaboration uh, between communities mm -hmm. of color, too. A lot of. South Asian, there's such such a great, powerful group of um, South Asian activists and artists and intellectuals around the country, and they're they're people are doing great work. But I would I would advise yeah advise more work between communities. And you know I'm I've I've studied a lot and thought a lot about identity politics, and I think people need to separate themselves sometimes from their own identities. And it's even more powerful sometimes if you're working with groups um, from outside of your own, you know, community in that sense. Um, so that's why my project on African drumming laws, I think is really, for me, it's really rewarding. And, and Give us the rundown on the West African drumming 
yeah. past project. Because that's like how we got to spend a lot more time with you in Boston. In Boston right. So we were lucky to have Neil hang out <laughs> on the East Coast with us for the summer. That was um, fun. Yeah. What's going on with that? So two years ago at LA Law Library, I, I started finding um, laws regulating drumming in Africa. These were colonial era laws that the colonial powers came in and they would regulate some of the most important aspects of culture, including drumming. I mean, these are control of drumming laws. And so I've, I found these types of laws in seven different African countries, like for example, Western Nigeria, um, you know, part of Nigeria, obviously. Uh, and then Ghana, Seychelles, Malawi, Uganda, mm -hmm. a few other countries. And so I found this pattern of, of, of cultural control and particularly control of drumming because drumming is so important in some mm -hmm. of these these uh, communities. We have, uh, we know that organically through these communities, uh, you know, drumming has been one of the main parts of ritual, of daily life. And so also communication, um, there's also talking drums. So the colonial government came in and regulated those and not only regulated them, they taxed drumming, they, they in some cases required a permit and in some cases they criminalize it the, mm -hmm. the drumming laws are in their penal codes mm -hmm. and so i'm looking at this you know from a very interdisciplinary perspective because it touches upon critical legal theory uh foreign law history um ethnomusicology and the the big case study that i'm working with is western nigeria this this small area of nigeria between 1956 and 1975, so less than 20 years, there was a hundred laws that were passed controlling drumming in the district councils. I've worked with a close, close friend, awesome collaborator, uh, Gaurav Bhatnagar. I've been working with him on creating a website for this project, and really, we want to make this a interactive learning experience, some something where people could could really access the laws, but also learn about the context as well. So we're building that. Uh, lucky enough to get a fellowship at the Harvard Library Innovation Lab at the Harvard Law School this summer to continue the research on the on this project and the development. And I've worked a lot with UCLA, the the ethnomusicology department there, and um, they've provided a lot of uh, research and support, um, particularly Helen Rees, the director of the World Music Center. So, how, how, where do you and see? Jessie. Ruskin. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> he's, yeah. a, he's a Nigerian drumming expert, oh, so he's brought a lot to the table. That's amazing. Yeah. Which, so what what are the next steps for this project in particular that you're going to be working on over the next you know year or so? Well, I found that there's um, 120 different drums, essentially, that were regulated just in Western Nigeria alone through these laws. And so we're creating like a catalog of all those, those drums. So somebody who, who wants to learn about West African drumming, they can actually find photos of all the drums mm -hmm. and audio recordings. This is what we want to build, you know, a, a library of, of the photos and the audio recordings. Um, open source. Open source. Yeah, we open want to access. Open, I mean, sorry. <laughs> open access, but also we were we've we've talked about open sourcing the information too, where people experts like let's say from UCLA or other ethnomusicology departments could go in and um, provide some of the information we need um so yeah that's that's a big part of the project and just continuing to spread the word too i mean every scholar i've talked to about this whether they're in law or history or ethnomusicology they're very interested in this project ultimately though the research has to be done in western nigeria so hopefully in the next year i'd like to go to western nigeria and interview people who went through these legal regimes th these master drummers people who um who lived through these these legal regimes and i want to know what it was like on the ground over there and eventually i'd like to create a documentary based on this you know that's re really really awesome yeah thanks <laughs> yeah a lot of great stuff where um, people happening. can find your work um on that particular project uh our the website is africandrummingwaws.org mm -hmm. uh, you can also check out some of my solo music at my website which is neilagrawal.com n-e-e-l-a-g-r-a-w-a-l.com and do you have any gigs coming up yes there's a gig coming up in a few days uh, i'm playing with a group called yes machine and i'll be featuring my percussion on that set um, we're actually opening up for lord huron um, who are close friends uh, of mine from michigan 
and uh, it'll be at you know one of LA's you know premier venues called the Terragram Ballroom. So that's on Sunday. That's on Sunday. Getting ready, and we're gonna feature a close friend who you got to meet, Sheila mm -hmm. Govindarajan. Well, thank you, Neil. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for the driving tour too. Oh yeah, there's lots to see in LA, and um, it's I appreciate you being here too. I know you're doing some amazing work. At, um, you know, I just appreciate you taking interest in what I'm doing and hope to collaborate with you and, and the whole Boston community even more. Yes! <laughs> Two more great collaborations. Yes. <laughs> On that note. Thanks. And that's our episode. A huge thank you again to Neil Agarwal for sharing his time for this interview and to Sheila Govindarajan for sharing her beautiful track, Ima Ima. You can find more of Sheila's music at govilovemusic.com. That is G-O-V-I-L-O-V-E music.com. And again, Neil and Sheila will be opening for Lord, the band Lord Huron in LA this Sunday. So go check them out. Also, if you've been following us on Twitter or Facebook or listening to this podcast on SoundCloud, you might notice that we have some fabulous new artwork. A huge, huge thank you to our dear friend Millie for bringing our Elmira radio to life. You can find more of Millie's work on Facebook at facebook.com slash esqueer, E-S-Q-U-E-E-R. Millie's work is vibrant, super colorful and very provocative. So go give Millie some love and go give us some love too. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Elmira Radio and our website is elmiraradio.tumblr.com. Until next time. <laughs>